might be all for the logistical announcements. Just to give you a little vision for this morning, or I'm sorry, this afternoon session, I'm going to briefly introduce 10 days and introduce the summit. And then um, we're going to just have some time to get to know each other. And because we're a little bit bigger than we have been in last years, in past years, I think we're going to probably split into groups. Um, but um, I'm, I'm excited for you guys to be able to meet each other. That's one of the biggest things I'm excited about. Um, when I go to a conference um, or a gathering like this, the things I take away from it are hardly ever um, the speakers. And the speakers are always really good, but it's usually those connections that you make along the way, um, those conversations that you have offline. And so we want to just make sure you know that that's something we really value and we, we're really excited about that kind of stuff that's going to take place um, that we're not ever going to see necessarily. But, but in the kingdom, that's, those connections are going to be huge uh, for what God wants to do. So we're really excited about that. Two, we know this is like morning, afternoon, evening. If, you're, if you get through the morning and you're exhausted and you're like, I need to take a break, you will not be judged by us. Well, maybe by some of us, but not by me. Uh, so, you know, just feel free to, to, to have liberty. Um, it's it's going to be jam-packed. It's going to be really good. But feel free to just, um, you know, go at your own pace. If you need to take a nap or step out, that's totally fine. We understand. Um, but it's going to be a really, really rich time. Um, I love being able to meet here in Northfield. So for those who don't know, that's... I'm looking right now at D.L. Moody's grave and his wife uh, right there. And uh, so there's a real depth of historic significance to this place. Um, I'll just share a little bit about the property and, and um, some of our connection to it. So in the um, 1880s and 90s, D.L. Moody returned from uh, his time in the U.K. And he went to um, Great Britain really not as a famous person. He was well-known in Chicago and in certain parts of the country. Um, but because of what God did during his two years in the UK, um, he came back you know, as really a, someone who was famous and, and was a, really a hero uh, just because of the way God had moved as he traveled all over that region, um, seeing tens of thousands of souls saved. And so when he came back, he and his wife didn't know where they were going to live. And uh, they actually settled here in Northfield, which is where Moody was born and grew up. And it was the place he always wanted to get away from, right? Um, <laughs> but he came back here for the latter part of his ministry. And he started two schools. Um, actually, he started four schools. Two of them were smaller. But he started the Northfield School for Girls, which is where we are now, and then the Mount Hermon School for Boys. They were not colleges, but they were... Um, uh, secondary schools, so basically like high schools, one for boys, one for girls. The other campus is about um, just right over the river. It's about three and a half miles away driving. And uh, so Moody started these schools, and it was at the same time that the Moody Bible Institute was being started in Chicago. So it was really kind of an institution period, building period of his life. And um, in addition to the schools, because Moody just hasted to waste any, hated to waste any resources, they started to have summer conferences here. And uh, the summer conferences began to be just significant times of encounter with God for the Christian community at the time. 
um, at certain points, they said there were 30 trains a day coming and going to Northfield during the summers. Uh, it was when you read the list of the speakers, it was like a who's who of um, Christianity at the time. And it's because Moody was like the the Billy Graham of his era, right? He was one of the better known um, uh, Christian speakers of that time. And so you you know people you know like F. B. Meyer or Andrew Murray or different you know different folks that you may have heard about. Um, A. J. Gordon. I went to Gordon Conwell, so Gordon was always out here leading conferences. Uh, we're coming out here, and most significantly in 1886. Uh, there was a group of 251 young men um, who had the first student conference. And at the end of that, there were a hundred of them who dedicated their lives to missions. And it began something known as the Student Volunteer Mission Movement. Um, the Student Volunteer Mission Movement in a generation sent 20,000 missionaries overseas. Um, just to put it in context, in 1886, the United States had sent less than 2,000 missionaries overseas in our entire history. So this was really a dramatic movement of God. Um, and, and so that's just some of the history, some of the legacy uh, that's here. And um, I like being here. We were singing that song, Faithful. You know, you're faithful. Uh, you'll you'll for, faithful you'll forever be and I was just meditating on that because I like being here because when we're here we're literally sitting in the faithfulness of God yeah. and it's it's visibly preaching to us about his faithfulness so this campus this school the Northfield school in the 20s and 30s um, there was this movement of of uh, I guess you'd call it liberal Christianity that's what it was called I know the word liberal means all kinds of things now, but that was the, the movement. And it was a movement that was denying certain core elements of the Christian faith, like um, the resurrection or um, the miracles of Jesus, uh, the atonement. Um, and it's like, you know, take all the good parts out of, man, what's the point? You know, no miracles? Man, it's like, it's like liberal Christianity is like a superhero movie with like no superheroes. You know, it's like... Let's go see the Avengers. Oh, wait, there's just normal people. Oh. Okay, this is kind of boring. So anyway, that was that was what was happening, and um, it was very influential, and many, many institutions in the Northeast and really all over were influenced by this, and this campus was one of those. And um, so the, you know, the legacy that was here, um, in a sense, um, that, that legacy of... Uh, missionary activity and renewal, this being a place where Christians would come to be spiritually renewed in their faith, um, was really lost in a significant way. Um, and, and this began, became just another elite prep school in New England. And um, hey, here's Rebecca. Hey, Rebecca. Wave for everybody. All right. Rebecca's going to be your go-to person along with Jenny for housing needs on the on the women's side, okay? Um, little aside there. So as as I was saying, you know, this there was this um, sense in which uh, historic Christianity, Christianity that would affirm those core principles of the faith, uh, really died here, and. Um, so it's just really, I, I mean, that's it's kind of sad, and it was 
I think, I think a real tragic loss for the body of Christ and for New England. Um, and you saw that happen throughout New England in this area as well. Um, I've heard from many people um, who've been here a long time, longer than, much longer than me. They said, yeah, in the, in the 60s, there were no Bible-believing churches in Western Massachusetts. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German theologian, he said in 1935, 36, in New York City, the only place where you could hear the gospel preached was in a black church. Wow. He said there were no, uh, that, that was, so that was the level to which this happened and affected, um, you know, just the spiritual landscape of the Northeast. Um, and so what's happening now, I think, is really amazing. This campus went for sale in 2005 because I think it's, it's a sign of what God's beginning to do here. Um, it went for sale in 2005. Um, in 2007, God brought a small group of us here to do 10 days of prayer. The whole place was empty. And um, about a month before we came, we got an email from the then owners, and they said, hey, one of our staff people wants you to see this. And the email um, was an invitation from D.L. Moody to come to Northfield in 1880 to do 10 days of prayer based on Acts 1, which was the same thing we were coming to do. It's pretty cool, right? It's like, it's like it's back to the beginning, right? So we came here a total of four times um, to do 10 days of prayer from 2007 to 2009. Um, in 2009, we're leaving our spring 10 days, and I see my friend, uh, Chris, he's crying. I said, why are you crying? You know, I'm like, I'm emotionally exhausted too, but I'm not crying. What's, what's going on? And uh, he says, the Lord just spoke to me. He said, we're not going to be back here for a long time. And sure enough, that fall, although we had a contract, we were canceled on about three weeks out, and we had to scramble and find a new location. And um, that fall, um, a group, a business that has Christian owners purchased this campus. Um, the campus was listed for $40 million, and they purchased it for $100,000. Uh, Hobby Lobby. Or the Green family. I'm not exactly sure how that all works. Um, and since then, uh, through through those 10-day gatherings that we did here in 2007, 2008, 2009, we just had a sense of some different things that God wanted to do here. Um, that God wanted to raise up a new student missions movement, right? Um, I mean, you could kind of tell that, I guess, just by reading the history. But this wasn't just, oh, yeah, wouldn't that be great? This was a real sense of a call from God that God wanted to raise up night and day prayer again in this place, um, that God uh, just wanted to make this a place of John 17 unity where many different tribes and many different organizations would come together and work together uh, to advance the gospel around the world. So we're getting these downloads and, and hearing these different things from the Lord. And what happened is Hobby Lobby bought the place and then all these different things tried to happen here. Um, First one group, then another group, then another group. And it was like, huh, I wonder if this is what the Lord really wants. And then it would fall through. And it was like, this happened for years and years. And we're just watching it. We're like, all right, this is, this is crazy. And um, what's happened now is the Moody Center has come here. Um, and uh, 
we feel in a lot of ways like they're certainly championing, um, uh, they, they want to restore and revive the legacy of D.L. Moody, which is really exciting. Um, the campus has been divided. The Half the campus is owned by a group called Thomas Aquinas College, which is a, a Catholic Christian uh, great books college. And the other half, uh, or the other part, by the Moody Center. And so it's been great to partner with the Moody Center. We're really grateful for them, for everything that um, they're providing us with, and just for their partnership to be able to work together with them. And we're really just so excited that a group that loves Jesus, um, that wants to see the legacy of Moody revived, is back here on this property and is opening the door again for things like this to happen, right? For Jesus to be worshipped and praised. Back in the day of the Northfield conferences, you know, there were different things that were commonly said. One of them was they would call these, this place heaven on earth. And um, I'll never forget last fall, I'm, I'm driving home with someone after the end of, of uh, one of the meetings here uh, at the end of 10 days. And they're, they're just saying to me, wow, it's like heaven and earth there. <laughs> and you're hearing this, you know, you're hearing the sound that was things that haven't been spoken in 100 years start to be spoken again. And so that's to me, that's very exciting. Um, and we've been seeing our team here has been seeing just some amazing things happen. We've been doing house of prayer here uh, regularly. And um, the house of prayer at the end of this 10 day summit, we're actually going to be moving into Deal Moody's house. Which is just cool. So I'm sorry to go on and on about this. I just wanted to give a little bit of the background and the history and share some of the exciting things that God is doing um, in our time and, and how being here is almost like being um, in the midst of him, uh, of a demonstration of his faithfulness, if that makes sense. So um, welcome to the summit. We... I've traveled a lot in the last five or six years, maybe seven years, and um, I was talking with Jamie. Jamie uh, and I worked together for about four years, and and Jamie said, Jonathan, you know, you can't just keep driving everywhere. (laughs) And uh, she said, you know, you can't just, like, expect people to have a two-hour conversation and then really get the vision of 10 days. Um, She said, "What what if we brought people together? Um, and, and we're able to get everyone together in one place, and then, you know, we could do it all at the same time. And that made a lot of sense to me. I actually had some knee problems from driving so much. So I was like, okay, that, you, you, you convinced me. Um, and uh, so we kind of just birthed it out of that idea. And uh, from the start, there was a strong connection um, with the One Church, One Day vision um, that's been championed by Jason Hubbard and others. Um, in 2015, the Lord just said to me, you know, wherever you take 10 days, I want you to take one church as well. And so we had our first summit in Denver in 2016. Uh, Father Phil Eberhardt hosted us. It was just a powerful time of, of coming together of different um, leaders of John 17 movements. And so this will be our third summit. Um, we want it to be a time of connection and a time just to, for people of like heart to um, to connect, to encourage one another, to go deep together. And we also want it to be a time where we um, can hear together about different strategies and different things that God is bringing 
forth in the earth that can advance um, what he's doing in our areas. Um, so I'm just going to lay a little bit of the foundation here um, for 10 days, just in about 15 minutes, just to kind of let you know what it is and, and, and why we want to do this. Um, 10 days started out of uh, the... Uh, the grain of sand in the oyster, if you will, was um, Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he prays, let them be one as we are one. I was with a group of, of leaders um, recently, and um, they were saying, yeah, John 17 unity, like when we work together and don't fight. <laughs> and I'm like, well, working together and not fighting is good. That's a good start. Um, it's better than not working together or working together and fighting. Um, I like, you know, but I like that. But John 17 unity is so much more than working together and not fighting, right? Um, let them be one as we are one, as the Father is one with the Son. I think, I think one thing we want to do here during this time is just go deep in what that means, right? Um, to understand what Jesus is really praying there. Uh, the Father and Son have been one uh, from eternity past. In fact, oneness is essential to their character, to their very nature. In the creeds, because we, we didn't know how to talk about God, the Father and God, the Son, and their unity, we, we developed this statement that they're one in essence, but many persons, right? One in, one in essence, one in being, but three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So this unity is an incredible mystery from which everything in all of creation has sprung forth from. And God, Jesus, the Son of God, is scandalously praying here in John 17, let human beings be one as we are one. Right? He's wanting to share a part of his character, a part of his nature a part of God's nature with human beings that if, if, if it weren't revealed in Scripture, you would think that's not something that can be shared with people, right? But Jesus is praying for that to be among us, not even just us with him, which would be scandalous enough, right? Let them be one with us or let, let him or, you know, be one with, with us as we are one with each other. I mean, how could God bring us into that? But then to even have it amongst ourselves, it's, it's an incredibly scandalous prayer, and it, it goes so far beyond, like, working together and not fighting, right? That's not John 17 unity. It's good. Oh, I'd rather work together and not fight. But Jesus is praying for something that's so much more than that. And it's something when we look in church history, it's something that we catch a glimpse of here and there, but we don't see consistently lived out in the church, Right? You don't even have to crack a history book. You can just go to church on Sunday. <laughs> you can go wherever. You know, it's not being consistently lived in the body of Christ. But then uh, there's something even more amazing, and it's just the simple fact that Jesus gets what he prays for. Uh, Jason Hubbard texted me the other day, and he said, Jesus gets what he prays for, and Jesus gets what he paid for. I like that, right? 
Because he, he, he not only asked the Father for it, he went to the cross and he paid for it. Right? And so we know we can have confidence that the Father is going to answer Jesus' prayer. That this is going to be fulfilled. It says in John 17, 23, um, that when we're made perfect in unity, then the world will know that you sent me. So there's a consequence. There's a demonstration when this unity is lived out, when this prayer is fulfilled, it's going to be something that happens in public in a way that's visible to many people, people who aren't necessarily followers of Christ. So that's that's a powerful thing that I think is on God's agenda. Amen. Amen. So wherever we are now, it's just just humor me here, wherever we are now as his people, God has a plan to take us from where we are now to a place where he says, wow, you're one as we are one. And the world can see it. So this is, this is a part of God's plan. It's a part of his eternal purpose. It's a, I have to say it's a place we're going. We're going there, right? But the cool thing is that just because God is into partnership, he's not going to do it alone. He's not just going to sovereignly wave his arms one day and be like, all right, John 17, boom. But it's going to be something that he fulfills in partnership with us, right? This is, this is kind of a, a new concept for people, but it's always helpful to, for, to me to look at other ages and other eras and, and things that were new to them. So in the 1800s, the early 1800s, you wouldn't go to church on Sunday and take up a missionary offering, right? Because there weren't really missionaries. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a thing. Um, there was this haystack prayer meeting in 1806 in Williams College here in Massachusetts. And when these young men and women, they're reading the Bible, they're reading Matthew 28, and they're like, wow, we need to go to the nations and make disciples of people who've never heard about Jesus. And they're like, this is radical. This is amazing. Right? They go to their pastors and, and their, you know, the teachers, and they're like, hey, we think we need to go to other lands and share the gospel. And they're like, you know, if God wanted to save the heathen, he'd do it himself. Right? Now, why are they doing that? Is it because they're like, these aren't bad guys. These are, you know, good, solid biblical leaders. It's just they didn't have a revelation about it yet, right? Now, 200 years later, we've also probably supported missionaries. It's a very familiar concept. It's something we all get, and we all get the importance of it, Right? So I think the same kind of dynamic is happening here with Jesus' prayer in John 17. Where we haven't maybe appreciated um, the necessity of it or the um, inevitability of it, right? And we haven't maybe appreciated our role. Maybe we thought, well, this, you know, yeah, we want Jesus to do that, but he's just going to kind of do it without our help. And I think that Instead, it's going to be something that happens in partnership with us. Does that make sense? All right. So I think God's also raising up people to be part of fulfilling the answer to this prayer. And I think he's raising up strategies and ideas, Mm -hmm. uh, things that that are birthed in his throne room to help release the grace from heaven that's needed to bring this about. So uh, in 2004, I was asking God, how can I be part of seeing Jesus get the answer to his prayer and uh, did this 
21-day fast based on Daniel 10. And at the end of it, I just heard this simple phrase, this cryptic phrase, Babylon refuses to mourn, but my people will mourn before I return. And I asked the Lord, you know, how how is this mourning going to happen? And he said, call my people to 10 days of fasting, mourning, and repentance from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. Um, I said, who is it for? the time I lived in Santa Fe, New Mexico, I said, is it for Santa Fe? No, it's bigger. I saw a map that kept getting bigger and bigger. I knew this was supposed to be something that was national and also something to go around the globe as well. And I was really freaked out by that. And um, I just saw a city that had stopped everything for 10 days. And the people weren't going to work. They weren't going to school. They weren't um, engaged in entertainment. They were simply seeking the face of God. It was like the throne room in heaven had come to earth. And the city was underwater in the grace of God or in the glory of God. And I knew that it would be forever changed and it would be transformed. And I asked God, these two questions come out of my spirit. How would you respond if a city sought you in this way? And secondly, is this how you want to fulfill Jesus' prayer in John 17? So since then... We've been attempting to do this for 14 years. Um, And we've seen some incredible moves of God. We really have. Um, But there's still, I think, much further to go. Um, That's what we're calling people to. We want to see a a, a city stop, cities stop around the globe to... Take their eyes off of everything that's happening here, all the good things, all the important things, all the frivolous things, <laughs> all the sinful things, right? And to put their eyes on Jesus for 10 days. Can you imagine that happening around the globe? Can you imagine a billion or two people just enraptured with the beauty of Jesus at the same time during this consecrated season, fasting, praying, seeking him? Can you imagine that in your city, the city of uh, Pittsburgh, just enamored with Jesus, um, the city of Reading? Can, can you imagine your city just enamored, caught up into that reality? That's what we're trying to do here. That's kind of the big dream of what we want to see happen. You know, there was this sermon I listened to. It was just from a a local church um, in in St. Louis when I was in college. And the sermon was about healing. It was about when when the four men brought um, their friend and cut a hole in the roof. And, you know, like such. Can you imagine if someone cut a hole in your roof? (laughs) It's like, I don't care if he's sick. Like, don't cut a hole in my roof. Like, you just to me, that's a bigger problem than him being sick. Just saying. Um, so if you're thinking of cutting a hole in my roof, don't. You've heard how I feel about it. Um, <laughs> and the pastor who was preaching the sermon, he kept just saying, this was his refrain. He said, if we can just get him to Jesus, he'll know what to do, right? It's like if we could just get our cities to Jesus. Like if we could just get our families to Jesus. If we could just get ourselves to Jesus, right? And so that's what this time is, is a time of just coming to Jesus. It's so simple. 
And when we just come to Jesus together, he does know what to do. And he changes us. He transforms us. And he makes us one. So what is this 10 days? Um, it's, a, it's a set apart season. It's a consecrated season. I like living normal life. I like um, doing normal things. Uh, I like baseball. Um, so what are some other things I enjoy? I like cutting down trees. I have a lot of farm animals. I have kind of a love-hate relationship with them. I won't say I like them, uh, but my kids do. Uh, I like spending time with my family. I like just working and meeting people and doing normal things. But this is not a normal time. Ten days is a consecrated time. Consecrated means set apart. So it's a time for mourning and fasting and repentance. It's a time to reset our relationship with God. Um, And when we set apart time, God will just come and inhabit it in a special way. So in other words, it's holy time. Um, So this isn't, we we wouldn't want to do 365 days. But but doing 10 days can can really positively affect and season the rest of our year. Does that that make sense? Yeah. You wouldn't want to live like this all the time. But when we have times like this, it it, it can just impact and affect everything. Ten days is kind of like the 24-7 movement um, in a way. It's just kind of a almost like it, it's definitely related to it. I see the 24-7 movement as being the, the everyday rhythm, you know, that there's this movement of ongoing prayer happening around the earth, gaining momentum. And then ten days is almost like a special time of gathering the body together um, in an even greater way. And I think those two things can really feed off of one another and influence one another. Um, Ten days is set during the fall feasts. Um, It happens from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. These are the days of awe um, in the the Jewish calendar. And um, in case you're wondering, it does include parts of 11 days because we start in the evening um, of the first night. So um, you could technically have 11 nights um, in your 10 days. I'll let the mathematicians among us figure that out. Um, these feasts are amazing. Uh, there's kind of two groups of feasts in the in the Hebrew calendar, and there's the spring feasts and the fall feasts. And uh, Colossians says that the feasts are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So these feasts are shadows, or they're figurative. They're pointing to realities, and the substance of which is Jesus Christ. So um, it's cool that the spring feast, Jesus fulfilled all of them on the day, right? Um, on the day of Passover, he was slain, right? And then on the, the day of first fruits, he became the first fruits from the dead. On the day of Pentecost, the day that celebrated the giving of the law, there was a new law that was given by the Holy Spirit, right? On the very days. You see the pattern? And I believe these fall feasts, God is going to fulfill them in a similar way. But they're pointing ahead to not the first coming of Christ, but to his second coming. So these feasts are are kind of a prophetic symbol of things to come. Um, Ten days is meant to be an annual rhythm. This isn't meant to be a one-off thing um, that we do once, and then we kind of are like, all right, we tried that, let's get on to the next thing. But this is meant to be something that builds... um, that becomes a part of your annual life rhythm and the annual life rhythm of the church in your region. Um, 
Tendays happens in many places at the same time. I can't tell you how many times I've gone somewhere and they've said, great, so you're going to be back for 10 days. And I'm like, nope. No, ma'am. No, sir. Uh, you, you, we want you to do it in your city. I'll be somewhere, but, but I can't be everywhere. So as we're doing this, we're creating kind of a chorus of worship and prayer during these, these holy days all over the globe, which is just exciting. Um, in the spirit, the best way I can describe it is during that time, uh, I feel like I'm playing tug of war. You ever play tug of war? You lay hold of the rope. And when you lay hold of the rope, when you, when you pray, it's like you can feel other people are pulling with you. Does that make sense? And so that's what we're doing at that time. It's, we're creating really like a, um, our prayers are building on one another and it's having more impact as we do it together. Um, 10 Days is decentralized organizationally, but connected relationally. Each city is organized on its own. We really love you to have a ton of freedom in your own place. But we just want to stay together. We want to remain in fellowship and stay connected relationally. It's organized by geography. In other words, 10 days is not something that's for like the assemblies of God or uh, the Catholics or, um, you know, different groups like that. Although we'd love, of course, for them to you know, be, embrace it as an entire group. But it's organized in a city or a state or a place. And the reason we do that is because biblically we see that pattern, um, even in letters that are written, they're written to the church in Corinth or the church in Ephesus. So we think biblically that's, that's a model of unity, that church is defined more by geography and not by, um, oh, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, that kind of a thing. So that's why it's organized by geography. And consequently, it's for citywide churches. Um, citywide is just our way of saying the church that Jesus sees in a city. Um, so when Jesus looks down, he sees all the believers in him in that region, and that's what he would call the citywide church or the church in that region. Um, our big idea, the big thing we want to see, is we want to see cities stop everything during 10 days. We've seen some pretty cool things happen. Um, last fall, uh, I was just talking to Lewis the other day in Bridgeport. They had 100 people take vacation time during 10 days. 100 people. Like It's not a whole city, but that's, like, that's 100 people. Um, there were 120 who did it on the day of Pentecost, or you know, leading up to the day of Pentecost. And they saw a similar type move of God in Bridgeport last fall. It was very significant. Um, here in Northfield, we've been gathering people and, and seeing, I'm not exactly sure how many, but, but similarly. And similarly, God really moves when people stop. I mean, that's, that's my, my biggest takeaway from doing this for so long, is that if people will stop and wait on the Lord, He's going to move. Like They're going to be dramatically changed. And so, if we can see whole cities do that, that's, that's what we believe is in God's heart. Uh, 10 Days is driven by John 17. I've already talked a little bit about that. Um, part of how we drive, we, we drive how, part of how it's driven by John 17 is that um, we're both doing what I call horizontal, uh, horiz- vertical. vertical and horizontal intercession. 
So we're vertically interceding with God, right? We're asking God. Intercession is when we do something on behalf of someone else that they can't do. So we're vertically asking God, you know, release a spirit of unity, right? But horizontally, we're interceding at the same time by loving others, by reaching out to people in our city we normally wouldn't interact with. You know, we're so we're we're horizontally interceding as well. Does that make sense? Um, so it's a it's a time to so in, in both ways it's driven by John 17, and 10 days is a flexible framework. Um, there's so many things you can do during 10 days. It's a lot of time. Uh, certainly worship and prayer, but you can also combine it with, say, evangelism or major events um, or many different things you could do in your city during that time. Um, usually, if people are like, hey, could we do this? We just say, of course. If, if that's what the Lord's leading you to do, you can do it. Um, it is a tool for transformation. Um, this is something that's designed to create a low-pressure system in your region, in your city, where your city becomes inundated by the grace of God and leading to transformation. People's lives are never the same. The earth is never the same. The, the land is healed. You know, just all kinds of things can happen. But it's a tool for that. And finally, 10 days is a prayer meeting. It's really that simple. It's just like what happened in the upper room um, when 120 gathered, devoted themselves continually to prayer with one accord in the upper room. Um, And at the end of that time, what happened? The Holy Spirit was poured out. There was unity unlike anything the, the world had ever seen, right? And thousands were saved. Miracles started happening. The church was born. So I, I think at this time, just in conclusion, I think at this time, after 2,000 years of church history, the Lord is just saying to us as his people um, something out of Song of Songs, uh, chapter 8. Um, it's at the end of the journey of uh, the woman in the Song of Songs, the, the beloved. And... Uh, She's gone through this incredible journey, and and the Lord is saying to her there, um, "Take me back, uh, take me back under the apple tree where you were conceived and where your mother gave you birth." I know that's kind of a weird, <laughs> a weird scripture, but what I hear in that is God just saying to us as His people, "Come back to where it began. Come back to where it began. Come back to the beginning." Come back to this place where you were born, where you were conceived, where it all began. And it all began in the upper room, right? Jesus ascended. They prayed. They waited on the Lord for 10 days with one accord. And the Holy Spirit was poured out. And I think as we move towards the end, the Lord is saying, come back to where it all started um, in order to prepare the way for the final things. So.